Hello and welcome to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum in London. A few weeks ago, we looked at Constructions in Analysis, a short paper uh, from 1937. But now we're jumping backwards 30 years to Freud's 1907 paper entitled Delusions and Dreams in Wilhelm Jensen's Gradiva. It's a very summary paper. It's the first time that Freud takes on a full-scale analysis of a literary work. Part of it is set in Pompeii. Uh, so now, Tom, we're continuing on this archaeological theme uh, with this paper in Gradiva. Well, yes, Jamie, we are carrying on with our archaeological theme with Gradiva. And of course, Gradiva is one of the focal points of our current exhibition and digital archive. As we mentioned in the last series, Freud's relationship with archaeology was passionate, lifelong, and continually changing. So by the time we get to constructions in analysis in 1937, archaeology and psychoanalysis have both changed a great deal from Freud. They've almost changed from activities that deal with the discovery and even the recovery of the past into kind of more creative disciplines. Disciplines that have to construct or narrate truth from fragments and the remains of things. But this constructing, this narrating, always maintains a link to the truth, to reality. You'll remember from last week, we discussed this idea that for a construction to be effective, it has to contain a kernel of truth in Freud's words, and that the delusions, again in Freud's words, the delusions of paranoiacs also share this characteristic, this kernel of truth. Uh, interestingly, according to Professor Brett Carr, Constructions in Analysis was John Bowlby's favourite paper of Freud's, and it was particularly this notion of the kernel of truth that really resonated with him. Now, with Gradiva, we have a much more wide-ranging engagement with archaeology than we had with constructions in analysis. And of course, it's not archaeology per se that Freud is discussing here, but an archaeologically themed novel. So the main protagonist is an archaeologist. A large part of the novel is set in Pompeii, and the themes of the novel concentrate around recovering, the recovering of a buried past, etc. Mm, yeah, and well, of course, Gradiva is much more than a Freudian text, right? There's this bas relief sculpture of Gradiva on the wall of Freud's study, which, you know, if you're in London, you can come and visit and see it for yourself here at the Freud Museum. So how and why did Freud come to acquire this? Yes, absolutely. There's this uh, this bar relief of Gradiva is one of the most dramatic pieces, really, in Freud's collection. It kind of almost greets you as you enter Freud's studies. You walk through the door. 
In fact, in Freud's consulting room in Vienna, when Freud was still living in Bergasse, 19, Gradiva was positioned just above the couch itself, almost as if she was stepping towards the locus of the psychoanalytic cure. Now, there's an interesting chain of events around Freud's acquisition of this piece, which really begins with his engagement with Jensen's novel. So, we learn from Ernest Jones that it was Carl Jung who recommended Jensen's novel to Freud. The novel itself was published in 1903, and it's a story that's kind of reminiscent of George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. A sculpture, or in this case, the figure in the bas-relief, comes to life and the archaeologist falls in love with it. Although it doesn't quite work out so seamlessly as that in this instance, but more on that later on. So Jung recommended the text to Freud, and the very fact that Freud ended up writing a short book in response suggests just how highly he thought of Jung at the time. It's also interesting because Freud's edition of Jensen's book, which we currently have on display in our exhibition, has numerous annotations by Freud, written in green pencil. Now, generally, Freud didn't annotate his books a great deal. Where there are markings, they're mainly single lines along the side of a particular paragraph. So he clearly engaged pretty closely with this particular book. Now, to cut a long story short, Gradiva begins with an account of a young archaeologist who becomes attracted to this bas-relief representing a walking woman whilst on a trip to Rome. He sees it in the Vatican museums. And then, after he's returned home, he purchases a copy of this relief and hangs it on his study wall. Now, Freud published Dreams and Delusions in May 1907, and in the September of that year, he was on holiday alone in Rome, and he actually saw the original of this Gradiva again in the Vatican Museums. And he wrote quite a touching letter home in which he says, Imagine my joy when after such long solitude I saw a dear familiar face today in the Vatican. However, the recognition was one-sided, for it was the Gradiva high up on the wall. Now, Freud often travelled with his brother Alexander, and rarely alone, so I think we can take him at his word when he describes this feeling of solitude and the joy of recognising this familiar face. In a further identification with Norbert Hanold, the lonely hero of the novel, Freud would also commission a replica of this bas-relief and hang it in his own consulting room. Interestingly, Jones also describes how it became a fashion amongst psychoanalysts to have a gradiva hanging in their consulting rooms in homage to Freud. We often think of the encounter between Oedipus and the Sphinx after Ongres painting as the kind of emblem of psychoanalysis. There's a version of it that was uh, reproduced in Freud's book plate, designed by Bertold Loeffler, and it even became the logo for the IPA. But in many ways, we can also see Gradiva in the same light. 
That's really interesting. I, I actually didn't even know that it was Jung that recommended it mm. Freud. And and uh, by the way, and if if you're listening and you're wondering who the IPA are, that's the International Psychoanalytic Association. Now, as I mentioned, this was Freud's first full-length treatment of a literary text, right? You know, he he had discussed Oedipus Rex and Hamlet in the interpretation of dreams, but this is a much more elaborate endeavor. So why does Freud decide to devote so much time and ink to an analysis of a popular contemporary writer, particularly Wilhelm Jensen, you know, who isn't necessarily one of the quote unquote greats of European literature? And how does he justify it? Mm. Well, he's absolutely right, Jamie. I mean, he, yeah, Jensen isn't certainly one of the greats of European literature. He's a popular novelist at the mm. time. Um, and we tend to think, don't we, of Freud's cultural references as being dominated by those classics, those great figures of European literature. You know, Sophocles from the Oedipus Rex and Shakespeare's Hamlet you've mentioned, but he also writes on Ibsen and Dostoevsky. You know, so these are the, this is a kind of canon of, of European literature that he normally draws on. But I guess one other popular writer whom we could compare with Jensen to a certain extent, extent is, of course, uh, E.T.A. Hoffman, Mm. Uh, author of The Sandman. You'll remember we discussed that text in our podcast series on the uncanny. And Freud's way of discussing the text here does bear certain similarities to his analysis of The Sandman. But again, we'll, we'll come on to that in a few moments. So Freud's sources are surprisingly broad, actually, for a scientist. Um, these early foundational books of psychoanalysis they're kind of they're on quite lowbrow subjects if you think about it. We have the the psychopathology of everyday life, the joke and its relation to the unconscious, and of course the Ur text, the primal text of psychoanalysis, the interpretation of dreams. In fact, it's ostensibly the dreams that are described in Jensen's novel that make it ripe for psychoanalytic interpretation. If the interpretation of dreams had given a definitive account of the processes and meaning of dreams, according to Freud, then can we also use the same method to help understand the dreams that are products of creative writers? Freud asks this question rhetorically. In the middle of the first paragraph of the text we're reading, Freud really nails his colours to the mast. He writes... Only the common people who cling to superstition and who, on this point, are carrying on the convictions of antiquity, continue to insist that dreams can be interpreted. The author of the interpretation of dreams has ventured, in the face of the reproaches of a strict science, to become a partisan of antiquity and superstition. It's quite a remarkable statement, really, from Freud when you think about it. I mean, if we if we look ahead to Freud's later work, for example, a paper like the one entitled The Question of a Weltanschauung, or a Worldview in English, where Freud is adamant that psychoanalysis fits under a definition of science. Here, he's denouncing a kind of strict science, in his words, and describing himself 
as a partisan of superstition and antiquity. I find these sentences reminiscent, really, of the epigraph from the interpretation of dreams. The quote from Virgil's Aeneid, and where Freud quotes, if I can't stir the gods above, I'll rouse the powers below, or words to that effect. It's an extremely provocative statement, isn't it? This is Freud as the enfant terrible of science. Freud the iconoclast. Of course, after Freud, science will never be the same again. Dreams, of course, have meaning for Freud. They're not meaningless products of physiological processes or mental twitching, as he writes. The inner world is governed by laws just as the outside world is. Freud's project here, then, is to expand the reach of science so that it can incorporate objects of study, such as literary texts. It's no longer the strict science that Freud sets up as, an, as antagonistic to the findings of psychoanalysis, but something much broader and almost more troubling in a way, dealing with obscure fields like creative processes and unconscious desires. If the interpretation of dreams is the royal road to the unconscious processes of the mind, then here it is also the royal road to an understanding of Jensen's Gradiva. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to summarize Jensen's novel at great length. It's it's quite unusual how Freud introduces the section of the text. He writes, uh, if, if you have the text at home, it's in the standard edition, volume nine. He writes on page 10 saying, and now I ought properly to ask all my readers to put aside this little essay and instead to spend some time in acquainting themselves with Gradiva, which first appeared in the bookshops in 1903, so that what I refer to in the following pages may be familiar to them. But for the benefit of those who have already read Gradiva, I will recall the substance of the story in a brief summary, and I shall count upon their memory to restore it to all the charm of which this treatment will provide it, deprive it, sorry. So he summarizes it, but, you know, it's Freud's version of Jensen's Gradiva, of Jensen's Gradiva, and interestingly, he says it's for people who have read it, not for those who have not read it. So he, he advises the reader to go away, read it for themselves first. You know, what, what do you make of this, Tom, this instruction? Well, that's quite an odd thing to say, really, isn't it? I mean, you know, the version that Freud will give us is a kind of director's cut, if you will. <laughs> it's not there to replace the original. So uh, what Freud is effectively saying is that if you haven't read Jensen's Gradiva, then stop here at this moment, go away and read it. And when you have, then you can carry on with my summary. So the, the charm of the original, you know, this you read this word charm, the charm of the original will be missing, according to Freud, from his own account. But those who have read Jensen's text will be able to restore this missing charm through the work of memory. What Freud seems to be suggesting here is a process that's reminiscent almost of a case study, isn't it? So 
Jensen's text is almost the equivalent of an analysis speech, which is delivered, which spreads out over a series of sessions. And the brief summary that Freud promises us, which somewhat predictably ends up running to around 30 pages, um, it also includes interjections by Freud. It describes really how we, the reader, respond, or perhaps should respond, to Jensen's story. If this all sounds a bit confusing and multi-layered, then that's because it is, really. I've, um, I've run several reading groups uh, devoted to this text before, and I've always kind of encouraged participants to take Freud at his word and read Jensen's novel first. And invariably, we, we tend to have a kind of collective, kind of mild sense of confusion within the reading group. The boundaries between Jensen's and Freud's texts seem to blend into one another. It's not always easy to orientate yourself as a reader. The points you ask yourself, was it Jensen or Freud who said that? Or, you know, did I respond to that part of Jensen's novel in the way that Freud suggests I should have? It's a very kind of decentering reading experience. And it does remind me of, of what he does with Hoffman's Sandman, Jamie, is the, the text that we mentioned earlier from The Uncanny. You'll remember he makes a similar move in that text in, in giving us a summary of Hoffman's story and tells us how we should respond to it. But in both instances, what we get is very much Freud's own version of the original. He emphasises certain themes and certain moments within the story and then connects them to other themes and other moments, which kind of disrupt the linear narrative. And then he leaves us with something else. So in terms of our last podcast series, we could say that he fragments these stories and reconstructs them to create new meanings. Although always maintaining, of course, a kernel of truth, a kind of reality check to the original text. And, and just to point out as well, it, it's absolutely, I think, justified what Freud's doing here, because even, you know, Hoffman, Sam, Mann, Jensen's Gradiva, I mean, they're novels where the, you know, you never really find a, a stable base in, in reality. You don't really know where you are as a reader. I mentioned um, this thing about a director's cut earlier, of course. Um, we could think of a, a kind of special edition DVD or Blu-ray box set <laughs> with extra... Why are you chuckling? <laughs> with extra features, including a director's audio comment. I know why you're chuckling because I know I'm showing my age here because no one really buys box sets anymore, do they? But they all stream them online. Anyway, in this... Imagine, Jamie, cast your mind back to when we only had DVD boxes. I'll try it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And the director says, you know, in one of these audio commentaries, or these special features at the end of the film, you get the director being interviewed. And he says, in this scene, we wanted to show this and connect it to this previous scene through this or that technique or set feature or something like that. I don't know if you've watched those things before, but whenever I have, I often think, really? You know, I never noticed that. Anyway, later on, of course, we incorporate almost this knowledge into our own memory of the film. Yeah. And then when we remember watching it, 
we might falsely remember that we responded in this kind of official way on the first viewing, as the director said we should. Again, very, quite complex, but what I'm trying to kind of establish is this idea that there's many different layers of reading process going on here with Freud. You know, we're reading Freud, who's reading Jensen and giving us a version of Jensen. It's very fragmented. Well, as I said, reading Freud's Gradiva alongside Jensen's original can feel a bit like we're in a, a kind of director's cut version of a, of a famous film. But here we have the psychoanalyst's cut, of course. And this is produced by Freud's reading technique, which is related to a kind of free-floating attention, a phrase we've used before. This free-floating attention, which is used in the clinic and which brings out the latent material, which the charm of the original could almost help to obscure. Charm almost behaving here like a veil or a shimmer of sunlight that covers the original material. As you said, Jamie, this is a very summary text. But one more level of irony is that, of course, Freud suggests that all of the charm belongs to the original, to Jensen's text. Whereas Freud's own retelling and his subsequent analysis, he's a great persuasive writer, isn't he? It's full of charm. As ever with Freud, things are never as straightforward as they appear on the surface. Mm -hmm. So really, we're, we're, you know, reading Freud, who's reading it. I like the idea of a psychoanalyst's cut. It's a good <laughs> idea for some events. Yeah. <laughs> but, now, I like what you said, Tom, though, you know, the fact that he acknowledges in this last sentence that there's this charm that will be lost in the analysis so so that it is worth reading in the, in the kind of natural state. It's really complimentary, uh, really, for Freud to say that because I think that's the effect of great art you know for example i could i could describe now in detail picasso's guernica to someone who's never seen it but there's nothing like the emotional impact of actually witnessing it yourself and having those raw emotions uh yourself you know same goes for literature but let's hear what freud has to say in his summary of the initial passages of jensen's gradiva i'll hand over to you yeah, right. So Freud uh, Freud tells us um, how this young archaeologist uh, named Norbert Hanolt becomes attracted to this bas-relief that he discovered whilst on a trip to Rome, as I've mentioned earlier. And then he comes back to Germany and he obtains this copy. Um, and he lives in a small university town in Germany. And he takes this copy and he hangs it on the wall of his study, surrounded by his books. And in Freud's words gazes at it with interest. So this relief represents a fully grown girl stepping along with her flowing dress a little pulled up so as to reveal her sandaled feet. And as you can probably tell, I've slipped back into Freud's words here. One foot's rested squarely on the ground, the other lifted from the ground in the act of following after touched it only with the tips of the toes, while the sole and heel rose almost perpendicularly. Now Norbert Hanel becomes all the more fascinated after studying this image um, with this sculpture. Um, and not, Freud emphasises, because of anything that stood out particularly in reference to his line of work, as a psychoanalyst, as an archaeologist, sorry, as an archaeologist, 
but because of a strange, indefinable quality, perhaps connected to her particularly charming gait, and that's again Freud's words. So the hero of the novel starts to build a fantasy around the relief, naming the woman represented as Gradiva, or the girl who steps along, and imagines this Gradiva that the sculpture captures, uh, imagines that the Gradiva that the sculptor captures um, is captured from real life. You know, so the sculptor, you know, in the back when it was sculpted, has seen this woman walking and he's almost captured her walk in real life, a bit like a photograph, really. Um, and he fantasizes that she's walking to perform some administrative duty in the temple of the goddess Ceres. And in his fantasy, he also transports the, the original girl to Pompeii. So not to Rome, but to Pompeii. And he convinces himself that she is of Hellenic origin. But she looks Greek to him. In the course of the construction of this fantasy, he also starts to engage his archaeological learning. He brings this learning into the service of the fantasy, again in Freud's words. Freud tells us how Hanolt is not actually interested in real women, but he becomes fascinated by the position of the foot of Gradiva in this relief. And so then we get this quite odd description of Hanolt wandering around the streets, staring fixedly at the feet of women who are walking past him. And obviously this doesn't go down too well with the women themselves. He comes across as almost a bit of a foot fetishist at this point. Anyway, he eventually finds, through a lot of observation, that people don't actually walk like that and that the sculpture could not have been copied from real life. It's at this point that he has a dream. And as we know, Freud has indicated that he will be zoning in on the dreams in this story. Now, this first dream is in fact a nightmare in which Hanold finds himself in Pompeii at the time of the eruption of Vesuvius, so AD 79. And he sees there a girl who looks just like Gradiva, stepping along the stepping stones in Pompeii. And she ends up sitting at the portico at the temple of Jupiter and lays down on the bench. And then her face suddenly becomes paler and she adopts, in Freud's words, a peaceful expression and is covered by the rain of ashes. When Hanold wakes up, he's very groggy and disorientated, and it takes him a while to understand that he's no longer in Pompeii in AD 79. Absorbed in his own thoughts, then, he leans out of his window and he hears a canary warbling from a cage in the window opposite. Now, after seeing this canary and listening to this bird song, he suddenly looks out of his window and sees this girl walking along again outside his window, just as the Gradiva was walking in his dream. So he runs out of his room in his bedclothes, completely dishevelled, tries to start following this girl, but the street's full of people who laugh at him because he's basically run into the middle of the market with his pyjamas on. So it's a very humiliating experience for poor Hanold. Um, 
coming back to his room then, he hears this canary again and he kind of identifies with it. He also lives in a cage, of course, just like this bird. And then he decides to spread his wings and fly to Italy, propelled by an impulse from a feeling that he could not name. And that's where the first section of Freud's psychoanalyst's cut of Jensen's Gradiva ends. It's lovely, really, because Freud also, you know, he writes in his letters that his heart flies towards the south, you know, flies towards Italy. He dreams about going, you know, he looks forward so much to these trips to Italy. He, he loves this kind of, this area of Europe. His, my heart flies towards the south, you know. So um, you've got this, this connection between Freud and sitting there in Vienna, you know, like this bird in the cage, feeling like, like Norbert Hanolt and dreaming of flying to, to Italy, which is, is of course what Hanolt, Norbert Hanolt does in the story. Um, as I said, that's where Freud's kind of telling, retelling of, of Jensen's story of Gradiva, the first part ends. Um, and I think actually that's probably where, where we can end this week as well. And, and we'll pick up with the story next time. That's a great place to end. Well, thank you so much, Tom. This, this was a great kind of description to start us off and you know, just adore this text. It's so dreamy. Um, I'm super excited to hear more in the weeks to come. But we'll uh, we'll be carrying on with Freud's psychoanalyst's cut of Wilhelm Jensen's Gradiva in our next episode out in a couple of weeks. You can subscribe to the Freud Museum's podcast page if you'd like to be notified of this second episode from our Gradiva series from Freud in Focus. Now, the exhibition Freud's Antiquity, Object, Idea, Desire is in its final weeks. So do pop by the Freud Museum if you're in or around London and check it out. But thanks today for all of you listening. Until next time, take care. <laughs>